Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. The very best of last week's rugby coaching webinars and podcasts, reviewed by host Phil Flewellyn and his special guests. Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. Thank you for joining us for Season 2 as we delve back into the world of sports coaching and rugby. My guests will be presenting their key learnings from a piece of content of their choosing and we then discuss its implication and implementation. As always, I'm delighted to have another three wonderful individuals join me this week. So ladies, if you would like to introduce yourselves and tell us your current role. Hi Phil, thanks for having me here this evening. Delighted to be here. Uh, My name is Jenny Cody. I work for UK Coaching as a coach developer in the talent and performance space. And more recently on a cool project with Basketball England on a female coach program in leadership and performance. And hi, my name is Marianne Davies. Um, I'm also working with uh, UK Coaching. So Jenny's part of uh, we're part of the same team as Jenny. Um, I work as a senior coach developer at UK Coaching, and um, my background is in adventure sports. And uh, I, I kind of do quite a lot of stuff in equestrian as well, although not officially coaching. Um, and yeah, great, great to be here. Thank you very much. Hi, Phil. Um, thanks for having me. I'm Dr. Anna Stodder. I'm a senior lecturer in sports coaching and PE at Anglia Ruskin University in Cambridge. Um, I also coach a bit of rugby, although I haven't done that for a little while um, because of a small thing called the pandemic. And um, I used to play a bit too. Wonderful. Great to have you all on. Really appreciate you giving up your time. Before we get started, just a reminder for anyone listening to check out the blurb for links to all the content we discuss and recommendations to other high quality podcasts. Jenny, we're coming over to you first. So what content are you looking at? So about six months ago, uh, when we were, oh gosh, it's longer now, I was driving around and I listened to Talking to Strangers, Malcolm Gladwell's news book. And then last weekend, he... um, did a, it's a how-to academy and uh, I joined it for the hour and he was talking about the book and some of the thoughts I had back when I was motoring around and, and thinking about things had changed and I don't know if it was COVID period or different experiences in between um, so that's the book I'm going to talk about and, and share and <clears throat> one of the things I had in my mind before I went into the conversation based again on all the vir- virtual meetings was you know, how am I picking up on social cues? I know some of the coaches I'm working with, but they're relatively new in the program. Um, I'm really trying to pick up on where they've positioned their camera, um, what location, you know, in general environment they've chose to do the video in, what can I pick up as well as the, the conversation? So uh, a couple of things I picked up from um, the book and then again on the talk was the, the first impressions of a stranger and how many strangers am I actually meeting over the course of a week or a month, um, especially again during that period. And then the when I only meet them once, what kind of reflections and feelings, if it's virtual, do I have versus you know someone I may meet on a train or somebody I may meet as a friend of a friend. So all that got, got me thinking. And then I started thinking about myself. And I don't know if it's a cultural thing or it's my, you know, my upbringing, but there's definitely the, one of the three things he talks about is the, the defaulted truth theory and um, that you know people are honest essentially and that was that was the, the grounding part behind that and I said well I do and I call it gullible and I call myself being vulnerable in those interactions I assume if you know if I meet you Phil that 
you tell me your name's Phil, I've no reason to doubt it's Phil. <laughs> and then all the other layers of things that come with it. Um, and, and it's kind of how they talk, he talks about kind of society needing that and that people kind of to, for society to, to function that we've got to have that level of vulnerability or that level of, um, I guess, honesty, um, unless there's a trigger that indicates that something is then kind of not right in, in your feeling or um, in, in that space, and then you begin to analyze it. So that was the first thing. Um, and they, they gave, he, he does the book with a, a load of different anecdotes and stories and uh, put some research studies in there as well. The second thing was transparency. And one of the examples he gave was that Amanda Knox case where they didn't have any grounded evidence at the time, according to documentary and things I've read online and stuff, which again is presented in its edited way. But in the book, he talks about how we expected her to behave um, a certain way and her demeanor to be a certain way. Um, but you know, how far was what she was representing outside to what she was actually feeling inside? And then we had all these judgments and I know they're influenced um, by a number of different things but essentially he's talking about in the transparency how authentic is that window to the inside from the outside um, and he, he made a good example there about cultures and you know I'm, I'm working with uh, West Ham at the moment as a performance coach they've got loads of different um, uh, women on that team from all different backgrounds so even down to like the language, the demeanor, uh, what kind of facial expressions, how people interpret things. I'm analyzing all of that in that environment. And, and again, there's a great example there around frowns and smiles and, and what people interpret in different um, cultural parts of the world. And the last part was coupling. And, and the example's interesting, but on reflection, I just, I don't know how tight it is. I don't know how um, kind of broad paint strokey it was at the end. He, he does give an example around, um, um, a study, I actually have some here that I can just, he talks about um, a study that was done on 515 people between 1937 and 1971, he said, who attempted to jump um, off a bridge, but had somehow been unexpectedly restrained or stopped at that moment. And of these, only 25 people, less than 5%, persisted in killing themselves by some other method. He was talking about, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge and, and some studies that had been done on that, that that was the chosen bridge of that chosen time and the coupling. But you know, like there's loads of other examples around uh, maybe domestic abuse and alcohol. And if you take one away, are you really stopping the other? So there's, whilst there was really good examples and stories and I was engrossed in it, when he unpicked some of it last week, um, it brought me back to Blink, where in Blink, he kind of circles the idea that you have your instinct and you can pick up a lot on those first interactions. And um, now he's saying, nope, you know what? <laughs> I'm at the other end now. It's not really where I'm at in my thinking. And although that was kind of honest of him to to open with that and to write the book in that, I wonder how many people have um, thought about that basis of Blink and what he's used and used that in their conversations and studies and and journeys. So um, yeah, a few few bits and pieces in there for me. That's great. There's, I think there's loads to unpick in that. So I guess in in your role when you're meeting coaches or players or, or people for the first time, you talked about intuition. How would you go about? I want to say assessing rather than judging. I, I guess like naturally we'll always judge people in our head. It's not necessarily something we verbalize, but what would be your process of assessing someone? Because just listening to you talk there, I guess that actually we've got no understanding of what state they are in when we meet them for the first time. So they could have just had a huge argument or whatever it is. So completely different to what they would normally be. Um, so how, how do you go about kind of trying to make sure that maybe you don't judge them and that you then 
build that in as you develop that relationship? What's your kind of process around that? Great question. Um, I think on the, the the formal professional side, it's checking in with my bias, checking in on um, if it is the case, the last conversation I've had, um, is this a coffee conversation? Is it a coaching conversation? Is it a conversation that's going to happen in collaboration? So what's the setting um, really that I'm going into? But I think there's something bigger around um, and definitely checking in on on my thoughts during the COVID period of what you said there, Phil. What's being very mindful of, of the situation that possibly they won't divulge, but they've just come from. They come on a screen because it's a scheduled talk and then they'll leave because it's the 60 minute thing that we've done and, and then they'll leave and go somewhere else. <clears throat> so I guess my personal um, my personal angle was to approach a situation with you know, the first five, 10 minutes of letting them talk. And, and sometimes it's, you know, what's been on your mind? How are you doing? What would you like to cover today? What would you like to chat about? And let that meander whichever way. Um, and then, you know, leading out of the conversation is like, I'll, I'll summarize, I'll, I'll send you an email, we'll have a chat, we'll have a catch up, let's pencil something for a couple of weeks time and, and kind of just feeling what was coming back in the conversation, the language. And, and I do, I do read the body language, the eye contact, um, and I don't read into it with signals as such, but trying to absorb as much information from that. But I have this in the back of my mind, whether I'm you know, becoming tired for unnecessary reasons, where they're just like standing daydreaming, going, yeah, you know what? I've had a really good conversation today. And I'm like, really? I thought you were painting by numbers on the side. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's um, a, li a little bit of me checking in. I have to say some useful exercises that I did was to record the conversations myself. So um obviously with the permission of the coaches just recording from my own and listening back to the type of questions I asked and how good is my listening and what was I picking up on and where could I extend those conversations and and they had a chance as well to to, to view it or listen back if they wanted as well how far how hard do you find the conversation when you don't have the body language cues because it's a screen is that, that that's the bit I've really struggled with you you just like you say, you, you have no idea actually if they're engaging because some people will talk to the camera and that feels engaging. Other people will just be looking all around the room and I'm kind of just like, I really don't know if I've got their attention or not. Like, is there any, <laughs> like, how have you found that? Well, you know, I, I was probably a little bit, um, a little bit crazy when it started because I would come into a meeting and I'd be sitting face on the camera and ready to go and I'd have my notes around me on my iPad and I'd be like well how's it going talk to you you know and I'm animated as it is and hands are always going whether I'm on a virtual you know virtual call or real life and I re I was there going you know oh they're they're in this room they're at that angle they're doing this they're doing that and I had to as the time went on stop myself and go maybe that's the only room that's available maybe they're choosing to that because this is the time that or the space that was best for them so you know just ease your way into it don't try and be aware of what you're thinking maybe make note of it but see if there's a pattern in the kind of behavior and um you know check in and see if this is a good time you know pick up on those kind of things but it was funny at the start because I was like right you know you can pick up on everything but when when would I ever go and meet a coach and be this kind of face-to-face -face intent in a square the two of us looking at each other um, and I got like I got to a point where I, I moved my body and I moved the screen and I moved back a little bit and I'd maybe just, you know, just change a little bit and test for myself what felt comfortable. So I was being more authentic in the conversation as well. Nice. I really like that. Uh, so open question to all three of you. How when you walk into environments, let's say a conference or a coaching group or anything like that, how would you assess again, maybe assess ahead of judge? where ego and insecurity fits for a group of coaches because 
I always find this fascinating that you do that. Okay, let's all introduce ourselves. And, you know, most people will talk about the job they have and maybe a little bit of their history. So at what point are they exaggerating that? Are they cherry picking the best bit to make them sound better? Kind of how, how, what is your approach in the environment you've been in around how you would assess somebody doing that? I'm, I'm happy to, to kick off with this. Um, I, I actually think that it's really important in some way to set the scene. I think as if we're facilitating or, or um, in any way leading an environment like that, we actually have quite a lot of, um, usually a lot of influence over the environment that we shape. So I, I really try and make sure that in some way I put effort into creating an environment that feels safe and sort of that kind of being able to be vulnerable um, giving permission for people to be authentic and not, not setting up an environment that where maybe they'll feel that they need to, um, you know, say something that makes them appear worthy or you know so so I think that we can have quite a lot of influence in that I think it's interesting to um I mean in in my two and a half years in the community coaching it was workshop um workshop 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 and getting to know the people I worked with the different groups I'm very keen to kind of know the sportscape and, and get involved so it was um really interesting to see who positioned themselves with certain people the safety groups that stayed at certain tables the people who spoke in groups the speak people who are better in the breakout sessions that speak or more confident or well, whatever the reason was but it was definitely my approach I love that Marianne actually you shaping it and I, I think personally I've changed to um maybe going in and just assuming a role or a seat whether you know whatever role I had if I was facilitating or supporting a facilitator I'd probably go and check in with everybody and just see how people were going knowing that I felt that way before where I kind of just shuffle to the side and maybe just be part of the furniture and kind of just mingle in during the day. Um, but I, I think it's there is something around um, eye contact and no matter how many times a person has joined a, a workshop or met that particular group, that engagement is so important at the very start. Um, so, yeah, I think assessing the room has been like, for me, just the, the really easy diagnostic of who's here, where they sit and what sports, what, what do I want to get out of the day and how do I understand what the people in the room want to get out of the day, really important. And then trying to make sure that the little small, the breakout spaces, the lunch, the pause in the afternoon are all kind of done strategically to support that. I think um, when you sort of asked the question, Phil, I well, I really appreciated what Marianne said about like sort of that environment because I was thinking... I don't sometimes I don't even get that far about thinking about other people I'm thinking more about me and <laughs> like whether I'm sort of okay in that in that environment and like where are the people that I know and where are the people that I don't know and where do I want to position myself um so yeah I I think I would have to be pretty comfortable in myself to be able to even get to the point where I'm sort of starting to analyze um other people <laughs> I don't know if anyone else is like that maybe I'm just a bit of a warrior <laughs> oh gosh yeah but, you know, it, it, uh, is it something then around, well, I suppose it is probably the obvious one. If you're in a state where it's a sport or a, to a topic that you feel confident or you've met these people a certain amount of time or it's like, you know, coaching awards or something that we might run that, yeah, I'm like, OK, well, I have a role here and I just got to do this role today and I got to get up and, and, and I know I'm confident in delivering or supporting. But there's definitely been times totally, Anna, where I've gone into a room and I'm like, whoa. 
oh god I'm checking with myself here I'm a bit nervous today I'm not even doing anything I'm nervous in this group how will I be received uh, what am I expected to say when I sit at this table here um you know because sometimes there is that you know we're all in let's get the pens and markers out let's draw on the flip chart what are you what do you want to say and go should I should I say something now or I'm just gonna listen you know but yeah I guess that for sure maybe I just think that because it's uh the week before university starts again so I'll be meeting lots of new people and um, I remember when I first started as a lecturer and um, all the students, I find it really amazing how all the students wait for you to, to let them into a room and they sit and they wait for you to say something. And yeah, because that's your role. It's just assumed, you know, that's what the lecturer does. They stand at the front and they tell everyone what's going to happen and sort of lead the whole thing. And because um, I'd never done that before, it felt weird. So, and like every year when university starts again, and even more so this year, because it's been a big break since March, you do get a bit nervous. <laughs> um, so yeah, being back in the room and sort of interacting with people, uh, maybe that's why uh, my first thought was my own anxieties. I, I think actually that that is a, probably quite an important thing to raise maybe for, for people listening to this, because probably all of us do stuff that other people think is, you know, requires a lot of confidence but um i think that ebbs and you know it wanes doesn't it and it builds and i mean i remember the first coach time i well, i wasn't coaching i was instructing and i had a group of eight-year-olds and i was so terrified of talking to them i all i was aware of is my sweaty hands and i literally had five eight-year-olds in front of me you know i was completely gripped <laughs> and then and i kind of got really confident doing loads of management training stuff and then kind of like i had a bit of you know, life um, curveball and didn't do anything for years. And then actually when I went back, the first time I stood up and do a presentation was actually for my MRes. And I was desperate to get a distinction, which, which I actually managed to do, but nearly lost it because I couldn't stand up and present. I got really low marks my presentation, but thankfully the rest of it was like really high up. And I was, again, I was just completely sweaty. I was like, I know this, but I was so nervous standing up and talking to three people. And then, and then when I did the presentation at Sheffield last year, one of those three people walked through the door as I was about to start. And I was like, no, no, don't take me back to that place because I'm not, I'm okay now. And it was, I had a moment of like, oh my goodness, I'm about to stand up and present. And I've just seen, you know, one of the visiting academics from Bangor walk past and probably looked horrified at the idea that I would be presenting because she would have remembered how terrible I was, you know, and then, you know, a couple of months later, I was giving a keynote speech in front of 250 people. So I think it's really important to recognise that actually, it's your um, opinion. It is interesting, though, there. I was wondering, because, like, it, how much of that is the the perception of demand and perception of ability? Neil Roach talked at our national event there, I think it was 12 months ago now. Um, but um, that I've definitely picked up on that since there, when it could actually be, like, even coming onto the podcast this evening, you know, it wasn't cool as a breeze where I'm just going to go, oh, yeah, just chill out with, uh, you know, Phil, Anna and Marianne. Yeah, I was like, right, come on to your podcast. I have high expectations of myself here. How's this going to come across? How? And, and, and same with everything I do, you know, whether it's the 15th time I visited somebody in the room, I have expectations of myself, but then also the, the people around me and how I'm being received. So it's juggling that perception of uh, ability and demand, I think, and there was one time when I was going to do this presentation where I think I thought I was really ready. There was a lot of people in the room, big workshop, big event, but I, I was in a place where I knew exactly where it was going to go. If it went off piece, I was okay. There was, 
I was comfortable and confident. And then somebody said, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to attend that workshop tomorrow. And I was like, no problem. Yeah. Oh, it'd be great to have you there. Oh, super. <laughs> I'm going back to the hotel room that evening going, take out the laptop, have a look at the slides, see what you're going to do here. You know, so no matter how prepared, sometimes it is just that, that kind of expectation of myself to, to nail it or to be authentic as authentic as possible you know i give the con the, the question some context so um i sent jenny earlier i started my master's uh, yesterday at worcester so and and we had to do that classic right just sit down and introduce yourself and and we'd done a, a little task of a video introduction as well which was like a minute and a half and it was just something i was i was kind of umming and eyeing about what i wanted to put in and I tried to avoid watching anyone else's before I did mine, not to kind of, you know, steer where it wanted to go. And then when we got into the room, we did a little bit of a summary and it was kind of like, what, what would I share and why? And then why have other people chosen what they have? Because some, I, I think they just completely downplayed it. And they just, they just even, you know, over the lunch break or whatever, talking to them, they'd done some really cool stuff, but they didn't really go into any detail. And then there were some other people that were kind of, you know, I've been a professional coach at this and I've done this and I've international and blah, 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 blah. and you're kind of just going, that's great. That's like, no one's judging either as right or wrong, but it, it was just this fascinating insight into does the people that shared the level, does that give them more credibility straight away or not? Like it, it's just not, it's not a level playing field, but I can't quite work out why. And then I was just like, Oh, well, okay, I'm going to play a little game and try and, make like some sort of semi-assessment of people and then see later on kind of just you know just be like oh is I wonder if that's because they're slightly insecure because maybe they haven't done much coaching and then try and work out whether my judgment is correct later on down the line and I have no idea whether I you know should be doing that but it was just a really fun thing in my head I was just like oh I wonder if they're you know if that's why they've done that or that's why they've not done that mm, okay well we'll work that one out so yeah that was the reason for the question so slightly random but um I think something we end up doing way more often than maybe we ever think we do. And actually even, you know, I invited you guys on, didn't really tell you about introduction, but I've just thrown that at you with about 30 seconds notice. What do you share? What do you not share? It's, it's very interesting. And I, I go back to, I think Nick Levitt tweeted it ages ago when we're asked to introduce ourselves, why do we default to our job title rather than, introducing ourselves as a person did you tell them that you've got this podcast because uh, if they listen to it they'll be like this guy's analyzing us <laughs> he's watching us no i didn't Del very deliberately <laughs> yeah so no no not at all but i i think i guess everyone i don't know maybe it's just me that does that i did, does everyone walk in a room and semi-assess other people you're kind of weighing them up and working it out i don't i'm not sure well i grew up with it with my mom she has stories about everybody and anybody and we could be walking down the street and she'd be like oh that woman now I bet you this is after happening there and that and she's going over there and I was like mom how do you know no it is that's I know it's like I, I know exactly what's after happening there Jen and I do pick up some of that and be like oh look at that look at that you know poor man or woman doing this over there and you know my other half would go what what were you pulling that out of how do you know and I'm like I absolutely don't know, but that's the story I just picked up there. I'm on the walk to a park, you know, that person's doing this, this person's doing that. So yeah, I definitely grew up with that. It's not just me. I'm glad. I'm glad I'm not mad. Yeah, not so much a question, actually. It was just um, sort of more of an observation um, that 
that when when Jenny was talking about um, that sort of default to be trustworthy almost and um, and again I tend to think about stuff in my coaching and my coach development but then I also think about it with my with my animals and my horses and my dog and and I just remember having a conversation literally um, last week with somebody who was telling me how scared they were of going into the field because they didn't trust the horses and uh, and that they would do random things and I was like well that they live in herds and any species that lives in a group cohesively is is going to have evolved to have some level of um first of all being able to pick up on cues and and we can pick up on you know each other's cues across species but also also to be trustworthy because it wouldn't it just wouldn't work you know if and an animal that doesn't behave like that soon gets hoofed out of the herd or the pack so it's really interesting that it's a very it's a very deep, um, I think, uh, thing for us to be, to engage with each other and be trustworthy, you know, and that even people who aren't trustworthy probably are in some areas, you know, so even, even people who we may not consider, you know, like, it's like that band of thieves, isn't it? They're trustworthy within an environment. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think when I did um, start to unpick that from last Friday night, I, I wondered how much expectation or assumption there is on um, about uh, assumptions we have of other people around their ability then to accept the kind of differences of opinion. Um, and we assume kind of like, yes, we're talking about truth here, but actually if somebody has an, a disagreement with someone, how easy are they able to accept that that's a difference and not go, oh, you're lying to me all the time now? Or is that just, you know, when we're trying to support cognitive diversity, um, how many people who don't have that kind of self-awareness are blurring that line um, and, and really understanding the person that's in front of them and the intent behind what they say. Cool. Right. We will move it on. Uh, Marianne, we will come to you. I remember to unmute. <laughs> okay. So um, oh, I had, to, there were so many things I could have chosen so many. There is amazing stuff out there. And, um, but in the end I chose the learning journeys episode five with um, Leslie McKenna. And, and I'm, and, and because it was just all the things, you know, it definitely um, hit all of the stuff that I love and all of the stuff that I relate to. And I think actually that was the thing for me that was really important that I think. Um, so it's called collaborative learning and 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 Leslie McKenna was um, or she is she was an Olympic snowboarder. She coach, coach developer. Previous to that in the 80s was into a disco dancing and skiing. Um, so loads of stuff. But right at the beginning I, and if we put this in a bit of context i've been kind of thinking about how do we learn what do we learn and and recognizing that those narratives and those emotional connections are so powerful the meaningfulness um, of something is really powerful and she starts off by talking about her early childhood up in the cairngorms and how her father had been sort of part of the climbing scene then and then the skiing scene and it's this whole um it's actually a way of life, you know, cultural environment that is more than just a sport and more than just her parents, but is, is you know, it's a meaningful life built around those activities. And my parents met and, and were married in the Cairngorms. They, they were climbers and skiers. And, um, you know, and that scene was very much part of my childhood and my early life and a really strong, meaningful connection to that to connect with a sport or an activity for an entire lifetime, you know, over that, that we, we tend to think about these, um, 
activities being something that you're going to embed throughout your your life rather than just something you do for a small period of time in order to get a medal or you know whatever so i read that really um that really struck me and also identifying as a woman with um you know being uh being an athlete being a coach being a coach developer i think again those narratives even if we haven't got somebody physically next to us that's supporting us in that space which i think we still need as women hearing the stories and and being able to connect and relate to those are still really powerful you know that that um you know by proxy makes me feel more comfortable in that space more invited into that space more supported into that space um and so most of it was about that and then obviously the collaboration while they're actually doing the sport and how much she loved the 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 sort of the snowboarding and the pipes and and that balance of creativity and structure and being um flamboyant and you know being able to be expressive within the bounds of something that actually is quite dangerous it's a sport that has an element of risk so there was all that sort of balance and push pull between those but it also made me think about again about how much meaning and um um those sort of emotional things matter and scaffolding those as as maybe as coaches that we understand what's going on because she talked about loving you know that she when she had a go at snowboarding she literally you know she turned from skiing she that was it she was on the other side because it gave her all the stuff that she'd love with the disco dancing and that creative fun and being with her friends and you know like working moves and and it also reminded me of watching my son you know doing his stuff you know so they they spent hours on like one rail building stuff but then we did that bouldering you know you have a piece of rock and you spend hours and hours working moves copying each other building giving beta um so there was so much in there that i know it just hit all the stuff that i loved but actually and then i thought maybe i should choose something that doesn't do that but then i thought actually no i'm good there's three there's two other people here that are going to pick things so i'm gonna go with it because I think that's really important. We learn because we connect. We connect as humans, we connect emotionally, we connect to stuff from the past to other people. And I think all that came across in that story and really connected to me. That's lovely. Um, I, I think, you know, and all the stuff we've talked about, virtual, um, virtual cues and, and interactions, like you're so animated sharing that story. and. What I, I mean, we, I think we were part of a conversation a couple of weeks ago, Marianne, where we talked about episodic memory. Now that was related to performance, but actually the, the, the impact that that's had you connecting back. I know you've written some blogs where you, you were observing and, and interacting with your son. Um, I think what was lovely, I listened to that. I thought Doug did a great job, um, meandering, maneuvering that conversation. But what was lovely is in all the experiences and roles that she's had, none were more important than the other it was all part of the journey and I think there's a line and I can't remember how it's phrased I think it was the one-liner leading into it where she like accidentally made the Olympic team or something like that I was like oh yes how do you know you're so immersed in a journey you're just like oh by the way you made the Olympic team or oh cool okay I'll go to that do a bit of this um and I wrote I I retweeted the podcast and I wrote on top you know thanks for sharing because it was was poignant and moments honest and thought-provoking and uh, she wrote back that I, I think I said something about like the diamonds in it. She said, I think the diamonds only sparkle if they're able to be useful to others in some other way. And it, it definitely feels by how you've 
um, kind of depicted it and, and how it's impacted you that it's there's a sparkle there for you in that for sure and I think all the way through that like you say she creates a space that invites because she's just so lovely and authentic isn't she all the way through it yeah inadvertently qualified for the Olympics oh that's the line yes inadvertently well done <laughs> oh lord brilliant brilliant um so yeah your chat about kind of background and obviously I'm from near the Cairngorm so that I can sort of identify with that but it just reminds me of um, research on biography and how learning is a lifelong thing and it's all the kind of experiences that you go through that just mean you're a continually changing person and that influences how you interpret all the different new experiences that you have in turn. Um, but yeah, the the sort of Karen Gorms thing, I loved hearing about that. <laughs> um, yeah, was it, was it, how do you think that that kind of background biography has influenced you, Marianne? Um, do you mean the, the being involved in, within the sort of adventure sports and the climbing? Um, oh, good question. Um, it, it's quite an, in, it's very different from most traditional sports. I mean, especially, especially the climbing scene of sort of North Wales. Um, it, it was very maverick, um, very, um, yeah. Uh, very much about adventuring as well and 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 close communities but it um i mean one of the most one of the most lovely things that i read actually and i should try and dig this out for this and it's something it's something about sort of you know those moments moments like diamonds i think it's called something like that and it's about these old guys that go caving and again it, it's about these they don't call it a sport it's like a life you know um a lifestyle um, it's something that it gives meaning and purpose and um, cohesion around a life. So, you know, most people didn't do it for, for, um, for a living. Well, you didn't have any money out of climbing then anyway, but it was, it sort of was part of the cohesion of the society that we were in. And I think one of the things that, that I find, um, and, and I find that in other sports, but I think that's really, I think when, for me, when I think about, um, what's important in sport is that it's not just about a medal it's about this cohesion and meaningfulness and you know um, being active for life not because it's an exercise you have to do to stay healthy but because it's something that's powerful and meaningful and connects connects you that's interesting do you think that um, the things like having race climbing in the olympics do you think that, that changes that at all because then it does become about medals no, or not <laughs> I, I think the medals are great. I think it needs to be an and and though. And I'm actually really, really excited to, to for the Olymp that um, the Olympics, that climbing's in the Olympics, that surfing's in the Olympics, that skating's in the Olympics, stand up paddleboarding. Um, I think I think those sports um, will make the Olympics more exciting for me. Certainly, I tend to watch the Paralympics because I always find that more interesting. But but these sports, I think, um, you know, bring bring something else to the Olympics. And I. I just, I, I don't think it's, it's necessarily about that. I think it's, it's about recognizing that um, it's an and and, you know, we, we, it's great. We can have people that have medals, but we can also have people who just, are, you know, are active for their entire lives and passionate about a sport and maybe coach for a bit, maybe compete for a bit, maybe, you know, do other stuff and then just happily carry on. You know, I, I don't know if any of you do climb. I remember going to Fontainebleau for the first time and being blown away. But just oh, and I was lucky that we went to visit Le the elephant. I can't pronounce it. 
in a moonlight and of course it's silver sand white sand and this beautiful open woods and it was stunning but there were a couple of old guys still bouldering and they must have been in their 80s <laughs> it was just like so cool <laughs> I think you raise a really good point about the lifestyle sports and what they'll bring to the Olympics. I don't know if uh, any of you saw, is it Sky Brown, the skateboarder? Um, so she's clearly been doing some stuff with Tony Hawk and there was the video of her doing like just this insane, massive jump. And th there was just so much about that. But I th going back to that point, I think it's, is her life going to be dramatically affected by honing in on an Olympic medal? it doesn't strike me as it will. She just looks like she's having the time of her life and what will be, will be, that will be a cool story at some stage, depending on what happens, but it isn't going to phase her too much. I don't think so. Um, so that kind of leads me to a, a question. What do you think, uh, kind of, I would say coach heavy sports can learn from those kind of lifestyle sports that don't traditionally have, coaches so surfing skateboarding rock climbing that type of thing very much group orientated coaching inverted commas but what what can team sports and those where the coach is almost at the center of things learn from those where it's it's just letting people get on with it um i think i think when we talk about letting people get on with it that there is definitely a lot of um there's a lot of peer coaching going on, you know, and, and within all of these sports, you know, people say, oh, you know, they'll go and ask for beta. What, what, you know, or, you know, if, if you're climbing, what's the tall people person beta? What's the short person beta? What's the girl beta, the technical stuff. Um, and lots and lots of co-coaching and supporting. I think for me, what, what maybe that some of the overcoat sports can learn is that there's more than one way to do things and and you know having and i know that's changing already there isn't just like one person or one model of an elite athletic olympic male who is then the the um you know what everyone else gets corrected towards um you know because it within these sports people do like you say amazing stuff isn't they're not all rubbish because they haven't been overcoached you know these so these athletes are incredible you know incredibly skillful um and passionate about what they do so I think I think there's a you know there's a real nice balance. There's learning on both sides, and hopefully, um, you know, like you know, just look at parkour being worried about gymnastics over constraining them, and be, because <laughs> you're taking that ethos away. So you know, I think I think from what I see, a lot of the other sports are changing already. And I remember very early in my coaching career, um, watching some people doing some. Uh, it was actually motorbike tricks. And, um, and, and just thinking, hmm, they obviously weren't coached because they'd have been told not to do that. <laughs> and, and wondering if we were coaching people out of being competent and creative inadvertently, you know, and so, and as a coach and a coach educator, I had to go and, you know, dig deep, you know, and I became a bit of a pain in the ass. I love that. It's so true though, isn't it? suddenly it's an adult's view of something where you're kind of going oh no, there's risk and yeah they're just like oh it's great this is the fun part like yeah risky risk is enjoyable so and that's cool um open question to all of you so going back to the piece around lifelong involvement do we make enough of a big deal of that for coaches as being one of their priorities to, to try and ensure that players stay within whatever sport it is for their lifetime? Or do we go the other way and make way too much of a big deal of it? Because actually our job is to give them the best experience possible, but actually to be really comfortable and happy if they then go and 
decide to experience something else. And I, I see a lot of people, again, probably more on social media, but there's a lot of, oh, you know, we're losing kids and, oh, we're never going to see them again and, oh, the game's going to die and whatever, and they're stealing them. And it's just kind of, well, maybe that's just what they're doing. Maybe that's part of the cycle. And I can't, I can't quite decide where on that kind of piece I come down. I think maybe we need to do both, make more of a factor of it, but make less of a factor of it if they leave. But I'm not sure. That's a great point. Um, some of that conversation, some of, some of those um, questions definitely came up in conversation with the coaches when they press pause um, during the, uh, again, during this, this period of, of slowdown and, and have a think. And um, some, of the, some of the outcomes of the conversations were around, is this bigger than them? Is it systemic? Um, and how much, uh, how much change and impact can they have? And, and how, um, how long, how, what's that timeline before they notice that they've had a love for the sport, you know? Um, and it does, part of it goes back, depending on the age, I guess, of what we see and uh, understand enjoyment and fun of the people in front of us to be and to look like. Um, but there's definitely something from, from my angle where I have had those conversations around, especially from coming from Ireland, where GAA is the number one sport, hurling and football, and it's accessible, it's, um, it's community-based, it's, uh, uh, you know, there's definitely a parish that's behind you, they facilitate jobs and a lifelong sustainable kind of status of you're, you're a hero in, in the parish. Um, and anybody who has any kind of athleticism is almost doing every sport just to filter into GAA. Um, and I, I've coached international athletes in basketball who could have gotten scholarships to all, you know, any, anywhere around the world um, and they've chosen to stay in GA and, and they're like really successful inside the sport now in Ireland. But there's definitely something, there's something there around like the the support that you provide or the scaffolding you provide for, for coaches to take that step where they go, I really am interested in exploring this and understanding it and giving them um you know autonomy and and the co-creation all the parts of the 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 lovely parts of the coaching that we we try to encourage and and kind of say listen if if you make a mistake or they don't win a gold medal then um you know it it i guess it isn't down just to you it's their what's it's what their motivations are and, and their drivers are um but like i've i've had a, a conversation a lovely conversation with a coach who's uh, in, a, in a performance space and a lot of perceived pressure to produce athletes to to get medals to podium and he told me a lovely story about how an, an athlete gave up on the road um, mid mid four-year cycle and moved to university just made a different decision for a number of different reasons to go a little bit to the left go to studies and they meet up every so often to go for a paddle and absolutely love the sport and um, have that lifelong well at the moment that lifelong feeling I love the sport I moved at the right time it was good for me and and he feels really proud that that's the the love that he was able to support her in finding in that sport to to keep it going but I think some of it is utopian you know when you immerse your back and the, the train speeds up and we're all back coaching now they're going right go 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 you know yeah I think it's kind of assumed that like everyone is aiming to sort of be an Olympian or be at the top of their game but yeah, it might just be to be enjoying it. Um, like I've played rugby at quite a high level, but then haven't done it in the past year and it's been great not playing, actually. <laughs> I don't miss it. Um, and yeah, um, sometimes that, yeah, it should be about the, what the person wants to do with that. And I think there could be probably more emphasis on, as a coach, developing other coaches from people that are, know about the sport that like um, I'm sort of working with a local club to 
develop a sort of women's coach development um, system program thing just locally. And um, I was thinking about the players that I coach at university level. And um, I've never really thought about them before as, you know, who, who would make a good coach? Like I could pick someone and be like, hey, have you ever thought about coaching? Because I hadn't considered doing that before. And I think maybe coaches should think about that a bit more. Uh, that's sorry if I'll jump across there that's a really really good point and we do have that conversation and Marianne and I have touched on it in a couple of meetings at work around actually participation and physical activity is wider than the just the participant it can it can be the official the coach the committee member everybody's involved in that experience and we talk about somebody having a, a positive experience that somebody is not just um that aged person, you know, a teenage adult that's in front of you. It's wider than that. Um, yeah, and, and it's so easy to get sucked in um, to the performance space and, and the thriving on. Maybe, you know, that's my current environment and setting at the moment. But seeing somebody who just loves playing or just loves participating is also brilliant and beautiful. And I think you, you make a great point around I guess probably just coaching in the moment and I've, I've heard a few people talk on they're kind of you know pathway coaches in various sports around maybe we just need to coach the player in front of us for now and, and I think that's probably one of my critiques of lots of sports have very shiny pathway diagrams and and it's you know and it's shared across everything and it's at every presentation you ever see which is absolutely fine people want to know how it works but does that always or does it start to create a mindset of oh, what's next what's next what's next rather than going yeah look you're, you're quite a talented player now and whether you want to be a professional whatever or an olympic whatever all we're going to do is try and work with you to make you the best person and player you can possibly be what you go on to do no one knows like none of us have got a crystal ball and, and i i do feel like that pathway kind of tries to almost intimate that we do have a crystal ball and that oh some of you will get to go down this well yeah by definition like some of you will some of you won't but why do we make such a big deal of that why don't we just go you've got a really cool chance to do something fun with some really good support do that what happens happens let's not worry about it I, I wonder whether we just start to create more anxiety in players and pressure in ourselves and those players because without a, a, a nice you know pathway diagram maybe it would just be a little bit more about the here and the now yeah I I, I think that's a really good point Phil and I, I and maybe and we've had I know we've had some of these conversations um Jenny and I and on on Curious Coaches Club where maybe move away from that the, the, these these linear pathway with these timelines and if you don't make that then you know go away you fail so uh, you know so people are dropping out but they're kind of dropping out because the system is almost prescribing something. And I, I really like some of the stuff that's going on, particularly, I mean, I know Marco Sullivan and others at AIK Stockholm are, are trying to have a system where people can stay there. And if they want to progress, then they do that. But if they just want to stay in where they are, that they're at and, and carry on engaging and playing, they do that. And then what they find actually is then some of those then catch up later or they, you know, sometimes we do have to take a break or go off piste or something else is there. But if we create that space for them to come back to at whatever level and at whatever time, um, who knows, maybe those people who we, who would have been discarded quite a long way down the pathway will be the ones that end up on the podium anyway, or, or the next podium coach. We have no idea, but um, the challenge then is how do we keep as many people in that system? 
you know how 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 do we set that system up and and you know and and be brave enough to think well it, it can be an and and it's not medals or participation we should have both you know and and then lots of people who are still engaged in sports in whatever format i think that's a great point it's also one of my bugbears with the diagrams it always seems to be that the club or the community game is at the bottom and again i, I just think that it, it missells everyone's approach then becomes i don't want to be at the bottom I want to be progressing down this pathway because it's there and it's available. Absolutely fine. If we put that at the side, so it's always running concurrently with, would that change the perception of actually the community game will always be there to serve me, whatever my outcomes I want from it, rather than this, it's my starting point and I will then be deemed successful or not in my experience or career of this sport judged on how far down this pathway I go and if I come out of it, I have to go all the way to the bottom again. And, and I just think if, if it was just this really slick, no, 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 you literally just move to the side. The level doesn't change. You were still good enough to be at that level on that pathway. You're just going to jump back into your club bit and then come back in at another stage. And, and yeah, a little bit of a soapbox moment there. Apologies, but it does, it does frustrate me because I do think it causes just unknown issues that we maybe don't, don't recognise. I always wondered why it's called a pathway. Like when I worked at Archery GB, I was a performance pathway coordinator. Kind of made me sound like I was dealing with paving slabs or something. Um, like it kind of, maybe it could be called something else that is a bit more, I don't know, a bit more open to different possibilities. Pathway suggests it's going in one direction and one direction, or well, two directions <laughs> there and back. I think that's a great point. Yeah. I won't, I won't ask you to come up with names now, but I, that's probably one to follow up on. If, yeah, if anyone listening has got a better name for a pathway than a pathway, then yeah, send, send us some info. Cool, Anna, we'll come to you. Okay, so uh, like Marianne mentioned, it was a really hard decision. <laughs> There's so much stuff out there at the moment um, to choose from uh, that's all very interesting. Um, but I kind of, in the end, went back to my initial thoughts um, and I chose uh, Rob Townsend on the Magic Academy. So... I guess this is because I sort of know Rob. <laughs> we did our PhDs kind of overlapped um, at Loughborough. But um, he was talking to Rusty at the Magic Academy about disability coaching and disability coach education. And um, I think over uh, the sort of lockdown period, I have sort of seen a lot of traffic on social media about um, like podcasts and webinars and lots of stuff like that. Um, but sometimes you feel like it's similar people talking about similar stuff um all the time and um i think that rob's work deserved a little bump up because uh i think it's a slightly different topic that maybe isn't discussed so much in some of these kind of arenas um and a lot of the things that they talked about in that podcast um kind of shone but they sort of chimed with things that i've found in my research as well um or just things that you come across in coaching generally. And they, they talked a little bit about how a lot of the dilemmas in disability coaching um, are similar to just general coaching, but magnified. And I think that that's why it's quite a powerful sort of topic to talk about and um, a powerful podcast as well. Um, so Rob's got some great stories um, about kind of having sort of coaching disasters and that makes you kind of think about coaching disasters that you've had yourself um, and uh, they talk about them well Rusty names them ouch moments and um, 
those sort of things that trigger deep reflection in you as a coach. Um, and so it's, yeah, I mean, a couple of the stories that probably people should listen to the actual podcast and listen to Rob telling those stories because they're his stories. But um, the one that sticks out for me is um, when he was coaching and he had to bat a ball to a player that had no arms. Um, and the player was meant to catch the ball in front of his face. Um, but kind of Rob's kind of actions in, in that um, kind of moment disabled the player uh, because he sort of just sort of rolled it to him and gave him like an easy, easy hit. And the player sort of looked at him in disgust. And um, I mean, I feel bad, like retelling Rob's story. <laughs> he'd probably, he'll, he'll probably kill me for this. I'll, I'll buy him a beer another time. Um, all these other side of the world. But um, yeah, it is just a really good illustration of how coaches' actions can be disabling. Um, and they talk a lot about the social model of disability. And Rob has told me about these things before. And um, I think it's really interesting to, if you hadn't thought about that, to sort of challenge yourself to think about things a little bit differently. So challenge your assumptions about um, disability or just other people. Um, because I, I have, I've never coached uh, disabled people or disabled players. Or, um, so I, can, I could identify with uh, when Rob also talked about um, that fear of the unknown and kind of he first got involved with it because he got given a, a community coaching placement working with um, in disability coaching. And he had absolutely no guidance, no idea what he was doing, no exposure previously to people with, with impairments. Um, and just sort of feeling very out of his depth and I've felt that too but just in general coaching um so yeah uh, another uh good story that comes up in that podcast is um looking at disability specific um or impairment specific coach education and how those kind of situations um allowed people to just problem problematize the person that they're coaching rather than problematizing the kind of structures and problematic assumptions um, that they have. Um, so people were acting autistic on, the, on this course um, as part of role play, which is allowing these stereotypes and false or misguided assumptions to just keep being reinforced. Um, so I think it's like a, a, a good listen to help you think about what your own assumptions are um, and also like the kind of last bit, they start to talk about coach education generally, coach development generally, and how more inclusive approaches to coaching are always just a bolt on to standard in sort of quotation marks, uh, coach education. Um, and why are these things not integrated? Because if the kind of problems or dilemmas that you come across in practice in disability coaching are similar to general coaching, um, but magnified, then surely if everyone has to learn to be a bit more inclusive in their practice, then that's going to make everyone better coaches and hopefully have better kind of experiences for the people that are receiving that coaching um, in, at the end. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, an interesting listen um, and I hope that I've done Rob's stories um, some justice in my description of it. I think that's fascinating. I think you raise a really good point around the coach education piece or, or they do in terms of why is it not integrated and maybe that gets or would get coaches over and I'm generalizing but do less coaches work in disability sport because there's a little bit of a fear of 
what if I say the wrong thing? What if I do the wrong thing? How do I cope in that environment? And I guess maybe that's just amplified because of an insecurity or a lack of understanding. So actually, how do we bridge that gap? Do they talk about any solutions at all within that? Is, is that kind of part of Rob's role or does he cover that off at all? Uh, yeah, a little bit. So that, that kind of does link to the fact that this kind of learning to be more inclusive in your coaching is always a bolt on. So that emphasizes that difference and it widens that kind of fear of the unknown gap. Um, so, so disability coaching or coaching people with um, other needs or more complex needs is just separate and taken away from what's seen as normal. Um, so therefore that just reinforces the difference. Um, whereas if it was all brought in, together then everyone could learn to be more inclusive and those those skills of inclusivity the skills that you'd need as a coach to be able to adapt and um, involve those people and make sure that they get their needs met and they get a positive experience out of that coaching session or that coaching program those are skills that are good coaching skills so everyone would benefit from learning how to do that yeah I was gonna uh, I think that it's such a good point, Anna. And 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 my other podcast would be was actually one about a friend of mine um, who who is disabled from a climbing accident, and um, so I'm really glad you chose that. I think, and I agree. I you know I I think over the last few years I've come to the conclusion that actually what they're doing in a lot of the para sport is light years ahead of the rest of us, because they've had to they've had to actually look at people as individuals and recognize that the person they're dealing with is the expert at being them and uh, I've uh, so we, we've, our Curious Coaches Club for Monday is is um, about Rising Phoenix and there's a um, I actually just have a little sticky here from Rising Phoenix so I'm getting I'm gonna read it and it's Stephen what Stephen Hawkins says at the beginning of the London 2012 Olympics he says the Paralympic Games are about our perception of the world we are all different there is no such thing as a standard run-of-the-mill human being. And, and yeah, I agree. I don't think that it should ever be a bolt-on. I don't think it should be seen as separate. I think everybody's on a continuum. And I know so many disabled athletes and, and other human beings who are more able than many people who are not. So, you know, because of the environments they find themselves in. And, and I think that's such a good point. I think good coaching um, is good you know it's good coach it's about that individual isn't it and and I think it was really it would be great to see that um, celebrated more and, and become more integral into coaching coach education and coach development yeah as an example um, when I did work at archery I was involved in the um, Paralympic academies and um, so witnessed a lot of coaching and some really cool innovative coaching sort of solutions to things that they needed to navigate um even just it was easiest to see in the strength and conditioning area so the snc coach that came from the eis um and worked with archery with and worked with the the archers in that academy came up with some really great solutions to enable those athletes to do what they needed to do um and it was much more interesting as mariani kind of mentioned a little bit earlier just by chance it's um yeah a bit more interesting than just sort of run-of-the-mill coaching <laughs> I think you've um like I think there's there you've brought to the surface a really really valid point about the bolt-on and I kind of felt that way around you should care when it was coming about um 
from from the work that we're doing UK coaching like that it's not a bold one it's a vital part it's a foundation and actually is it a case of well I'm not coaching an athlete with a disability or a need so I don't need to do that course right now so it's so just in time just in case and then you you, you encounter a situation as I've done in, in schools on a number of occasions years and years back and I look back now and I cringe and I may have thought at the time where I came across uh, in a PE session um uh, a new student who was in a wheelchair oh just change the height of the basket well I thought that was brilliant because they had they they could work on the challenges but I wasn't integrating them into the session and I, I don't know if I was protecting the the athlete or I was the child or I was protecting the others or I was keeping myself in that safety net um, and I remember a time when I took over coaching a special Olympics team for my friend who lives in, and is immersed she actually joined us on a curious coaches club a couple of weeks ago and she lives in the adaptive physical activity world and everything is the norm in her language and she just sees everything as integrated and it's just a fabulous way of thinking she's very forward thinking well not forward thinking she's just she's just um she just treats uh, every situation as right adapt and, and here i go and and um everyone gets the best version of her and I remember when I took over coaching the basketball team, I was really nervous about the language I used, how I approached the situation. I didn't want to insult anyone, but I wanted to know how everybody could be safe and I wasn't going to be disrespectful. And she was like, what are you worried about? You're a basketball coach. Just go and coach the team. You know, and uh, I remember we were two seconds in, two, um, two minutes into the game and uh, one of the girls goes down on the ground and starts screaming, shouting, rolling on the ground. And I go, oh my goodness me, oh my goodness, there's a big injury, oh gosh, here we go, right, oh gosh, I'm only in now, uh, she hasn't injured herself in years, and I take over, and she's injured herself, and I come onto the court, and I'm like, are you okay, <laughs> I got you coach, <laughs> and I was like, straight away, just snapped me out of everything, going, like, I, it was my own um, nervousness, ignorance, but, but not, like, I didn't see it as a bad thing, I just hadn't checked in with myself, and I didn't, I didn't have that environment to expose me to to different ways of working and and actually at the end of the day I didn't have to veer too far left of where I was Marianne you've just said it there how can we integrate that into formal calls into you know the, away from the the just uh, the just in time kind of uh, scenario and, and and encourage people to be more adaptive so they don't have to be improvising on the spot and then reflecting and, and critiquing themselves negatively yeah and I think if we do that we might find that we if we go back to Lucy Moore's point when she was talking about women, you know, if we see somebody missing, you should be asking who else is missing. And, um, and I think if we, if we have a more inclusive way of coaching, we will find that there are other people that are missing. There are other, you know, it, it's, um, it's never just one group. Is it? It's, it's, um, so I, yeah, I, I think one more thing that's really interesting, actually, Anna from that is, and I've written it down because, um, is the is the disabling that that it's really easy to rescue people that you've you know if you think that they're not going to be able to do what you're expecting um and we and we, you know people do it with their kids it's not just you know it's, it's this almost coach thing i'm going to give you the answer i'm going to solve the problem for you and i i always call it rescuing from learning and as a coach sometimes it's really hard isn't it you want to you've set a problem and you go okay i can maybe i need to think about whether or not that's um is the right pitch but I don't want to rescue them from learning yeah and it kind of reminds me of some of the first discussions that we had in this chat in that we were talking about wanting to sort of feel kind of comfortable and like in a new situation but actually as a coach 
when you are not comfortable and in those kind of ouch moments as a coach like you don't want rescuing because actually <laughs> those are the things that you've learned most from probably um I would say the same um uh, so yeah I suppose it's more about um in the podcast as well Rusty talks a little bit about thinking about who can help you through that like recover from that ouch moment so the ouch moments should be sort of embraced but it's yeah about how you recover from that and like use other people to get the best learning out of it as possible rather than just yeah rescuing being rescued or rescuing someone else yeah does that go then to the to the vulnerability element so there's a space to share a space to digest but also then kind of having that kind of go oh, oh, this happened in my session today where is that space for people and is that where the the communities the co communities of practice the coach developer support your your extended coach and your critical friend where you go gosh I, I really didn't have a good session today or oh, why let's unpick it let's you know share that and I mean there's so much uh, there's so much in that but really important to have that space to share be willing to share and kind of go oh I, I made a mistake or I feel uncomfortable about something tonight can we have a chat about it I, yeah that's such a good point because I think if people feel that they have to be um not make mistakes then you're not going to start talking about your ouch moments with someone else are you or if you're not feeling you're in a in a supportive environment you're not going to share them and yet like you say that's probably where the really good powerful learning happens because I think as coaches we need to be able to make mistakes and explore and you know obviously within boundaries stuff that we do as well and then and then you know have um and again it, it it might be the the some of the stuff that i'm doing at the moment with my phd um a lot of the women say oh the guys you know something happens and they just move on they just go oh that was probably just accidental and it probably was and they went oh and i'm busy navel gazing three days later about what happened and it was probably something that i have no control over and shouldn't be even thinking about it but i am and is that a you know is that something i've been conditioned to do as a woman I, mean, I don't know what the answer is but i just thought that was really fascinating that that sometimes as well we just need to go don't you know that that was just one of those things and it won't happen again <laughs> we don't need to unpick it we just need to just move on it'll be fine do you, do you think it's strange that as coaches we have a different perception to mistakes than players you know we're actively trying to get players to make mistakes because that that's going to be part of the learning process like none of us are ever thinking a player's going to come into a session and be perfect and I wonder if the perception of the players is, is the coach going to make a mistake or sh is the coach perfect? And why is there a little bit of an, Im well, it's quite a big imbalance, I would suggest, but w maybe we have a bigger hang up as coaches with us making our own mistakes than we would if it was a player. I've not thought about that until now, but it's really interesting. I, I'm happy to kick off an answer there because it's um, one of the things I found when I was doing coach development was that again, particularly the women I work with didn't want to get him have a go because they're worried about making mistakes. So um, I, I would uh, would would try and actually you know make sure that they were aware that we might not know the answer, or if there is an answer, there's probably quite a few, and they're all perfectly valid. And that what we need to do is like sample them and see what you know and see what happens. Um, and and I would deliberately you know say things like i'm just going to try something <laughs> or let me experiment here so that i can model that as a coach and a coach developer you know I, what i want need to be able to do is is just sort of get a feel for what's going on and talk to people and get feedback and you know uh, do that co-creation and and again it's 
it loops back to what we started talking about creating a safe space for them and and um you know and and i remember one particular course there was an old ukcc level two where one of the women on it wouldn't do anything when you know was really really nervous had really had a confidence knocked was only doing the course because her club would not be able to run any sessions if she didn't and everyone else stepped back and <laughs> she ended up being the one that was pushed to do it and um and by the end of the second day i could not get her off the water she was like hang on, hang on i've just got one more thing i want to i want to experiment with <laughs> you know and i was just like yay i don't care what she's learned if she's going to go away wanting to be on the water trying things then that's the best that i can get from my role of two days of coach development with her but i but that again is about creating that environment that gives permission and i think you're right i think i think as coaches we feel a responsibility that we can't let our play our athletes down so we have to you know we we have a duty to give them the best experience maybe yeah i think i think there is an imbalance definitely but that made me think of um my own coaching and the, I'm lucky that the players that I coach are a uh, very intelligent Cambridge University students. So if I do something, then I would kind of like Marianne said, be like, okay, I'm going to try this. Like I've been thinking of this um, and they'd probably be able to pick a hole in it straight away. If it's not going to work, <laughs> they'd be like, hang on, what about that? What about this? What about that? So um, yeah, the, the players can be involved in that process as well. I find. But I suppose that's taking the, taking the time to get into that situation uh, where you sort of know them well enough and they know you well enough uh, to be able to do that. That's the bit I find really interesting. At what stage are you or they comfortable? And I use the Wizard of Oz analogy. So it's, it's the, the wizard behind the curtain. You know, at what point are you showing them a slightly behind the curtain at the mechanics of how you work as a coach? Um, and that's the bit, do you do, you know, do you be really upfront and really honest and, and kind of lay that out as they go so they have an understanding of the process? Or is it our responsibility to hide some of that and then drip feed that if it's needed? And I'm never sure. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I actually start with, um, I've kind of started in the role, but our first hands-on day is tomorrow with uh, Oxford Uni, so as joint head coach. So, um, Anna, we will see you in... Um, yeah, six or seven months, but um, no, it'd be, but the, and that's part of the process. So the, the, the other head coach has been with the club before, knows the players, me coming in new, it's kind of this, okay, actually how much of me do I get to show them that vulnerability straight away? Does that build a better rapport saying we're going to discover some of this together? I don't have all the answers or do you need to have that credibility going? There's a reason I've been appointed to this role and everything else. And, and I, I always find that fascinating in any new role of how much of that you're comfortable sharing and how much of that do they actually want to know. So we'll see. Just don't say you're friendly with the Cambridge coach. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily this will come out after we'll have finished training at the weekend. So that we'll, we'll cross that bridge in a couple of weeks. So it'll be fine. Is that another group of people, Phil, that won't hear about this podcast? <laughs> Yeah, I, <laughs> that's why I get lots of different people on because then you spread the word. So it means I don't have to talk about it as much because genuinely, like the, the amount of stick I get from my friends, they'd be like, oh, you do a podcast. We never heard that. And I'm just like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll just stop that. Like, yeah. 
That's all good. Jenny, we'll come to you first. What are you recommending people have a look at? Desperately trying to not recommend um, papers because people are on the go a lot now and I'm, um, <laughs> I'm a podcast fan. Um, but if it's if the paper isn't mentioned by the time we come around, I'll throw it in. So the two are podcasts. One is um, the one I listened to on the way to work the other day, which is Ben Ainsley's um, with a high performance podcast. Just think it was really honest. Um, talks about openly about um, the, the, the little incidences that make a culture, transition, success. I won't spoil it, but it's just, it's brilliant. And then um, a shameless plug uh, from a UK coaching angle, but there's just so much stuff because we're at the end of coaching week. Um, Tom does one recently with uh, Joe Montemurro, which is the, the Arsenal women's coach. And he talks about, it's really honest on um, understanding and managing emotions. And um, yeah, just I, those two stepped out to me. I haven't, um, I haven't got a big list here, but the, those two just popped into my head that I thought people would, be, um, would like to listen to. Great stuff. Thank you, Marianne. Okay, so um, one of the things I'd like to recommend is um, is a podcast that's uh, just recently been released, and and it's um, it's Adventure Thinking Live episode twelve, and it's Paul Pritchard talking about acceptance. Um, and Paul was a really good friend of mine from Thamberis. Um, actually, my boyfriend lived with him about thirty five years ago. So we used to spend most of our time with them. And and uh, 22 years ago, he had an accident um, climbing that left him paraplegic. And he went from being like one of the world's best rock climbers, rock god, front cover of all the magazines, to having to learn how to walk and talk again. And he, But he's incredible and, and just an amazing, he's so funny as well. And so he, he, talk, he talks a little bit about this trip across they cycle across the roof of the world and there's three of them. One of them is the world's only blind lighting technician. Um, there's another guy who's paraplegic and, and he just says that he's never had so much, he's never laughed as much as he did with that or, you know, just, and again, the experience that they have, you know, what they do at the, at the level of, of what, what they're able is phenomenal. And it, I think for me, it was just such a lovely, heartwarming lesson as well. And um, and actually, the other the other one that I think was really interesting is just uh, um, actually I've got two because there's another podcast that Ailey's just done, which is which is one of the Magic Academy ones. So Ailey's a, a slalom paddler who's setting up Slalom Inspires, which I'm supporting with that. Uh, so uh, getting more women coaching within paddle sports and she's awesome she's so badass she's amazing so I, I, you know and that's a great it's a fabulous lesson as well so um and the other one is is a just a short essay called your brain does not process information like a computer which is the epstein one which is a, is is not a paper but it's a bit of a, a interesting read for some people might be a bit challenging so yeah those are my three recommendations <laughs> love it thank you very much anna what uh, what are you thinking uh well so yeah also got a couple seeing as everyone else does um but uh, so the first one is kind of a, an academic one um it's by ed cope and chris cushion um they wrote an article just this which has come out this week about um direct instruction so it's called a move towards reconceptualizing direct instruction in sport coaching pedagogy and it's in the impact the journal of the chartered college of teaching um and it's quite interesting uh, because it just kind of talks about how um, kind of command uh, and guided discovery 
kind of approaches to coaching and teaching have become very sort of oversimplified and um, it just sort of gives you a lot more depth as to where those kind of terms came from and what instruction actually means so more than just the bit that stood out for me was more than just a singular behavior it actually involves a lot of different coaching behaviors so it's quite an interesting read that um isn't too long either it's not like a full-on academic paper style read it's a, a little bit quicker and it might still involve a bit of thought for people but um it's uh, worth having a look at and then secondly just like jen i'm going to go for a bit of a shameless plug of uh, a podcast that I'm involved in uh, called Coaching Discourse, um, which is going to, we'll be recording our first proper episodes on Tuesday. So that'll be coming out soon, uh, whenever we get around to it. So after each one, um, we um, have a little debrief, kind of two beer minimum, uh, kind of picking out our thoughts from the guests that we have on. Uh, the first one's going to be about leadership and culture in sport. Awesome. Thank you. I did actually, I spoke with Derek on Wednesday, which was um, a really cool conversation. And yeah, really excited for that one. Having listened to the the kind of the introductory first two beer minimum um, last weekend when I was in the car. So um, yeah, I, I, I love the concept of that. I think it's it's much needed. So it will be really interesting to see what you guys kind of come out with and how it influences the, the discussion and the debate. So. Um, Great stuff. Uh, my one, I'm only, I will do one, um, is the RFU Eddie Jones podcast. So they, uh, Connor O'Shea and Eddie spoke with Justin Langer this week from Australia Cricket. And that was, um, that was just a really good listen. Um, if you just want to listen to people that love what they do and are really passionate and have some really funny stories. So um, yeah, not overly, uh, overly technical in, in too many senses, but it was just a really, really enjoyable listen. <laughs> Jen's pushing me to talk about uh, one of my many research projects <laughs> which is um, live at the moment uh, working with Simon Phelan who's at Oxford Brookes University so there is other kind of Oxford Cambridge liaisons going on there it's what a nightmare you can't keep them separate um, but we're we're quite interested in just how people have engaged with um, CPD things like podcasts and webinars and online stuff during lockdown so particularly for coaches that have have engaged in any of that like what did you get from it and why did you choose those particular opportunities so we've got a survey that's doing the rounds on twitter um so yeah keep a look out for that and fill it in if you've engaged in any of that stuff over lockdown please i am going to say brownie points for me because i have filled it out already so um there we go yeah no that, I think that's awesome i think that's uh, yeah it'd be really interesting to see what you guys come back with on that so um we'll we'll put the link in uh, with the blurb as well so people can jump straight on that and uh, and get involved great stuff right i will round up the roundup uh, we hope you find it useful thank you to my three guests for their brilliant insight links to all the content discussed are available in the podcast blurb uh, please subscribe like and share i'd like to thank you for listening wish you all the best and go well 